Welcome to the first lecture of the 1990-91 Book Arts Press season. By Wednesday, we should have remembered everything we have to do before a Book Arts Press lecture again after six months off. On this Wednesday, the, 19th, the 14th of November, Teresa Homtine from the Royal University of Ghent will be speaking in this room at 6 o'clock. Medieval Chanceries in the Netherlands, results of recent research. And on Monday the 26th, John Dreyfus, quite literally our oldest friend, will be delivering his 10th Book Arts Press Lecture on Gerald Mennell and the Westminster Press. That's Monday the 26th, the Monday after Thanksgiving, also in this room at 6.10. And then on Monday the 17th of December, G. Thomas Tansel delivers the 1990 Malkin Lecture on libraries, museums, and reading. And if you want to know what that means, you can ask him after the lecture. He won't tell you, but you can ask him. Our speaker this evening has been on the road in this country since the middle of last month. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Tulsa, Chicago, Bloomington, Boston, Amherst, and now here. He goes home tomorrow for uh, a well-deserved rest. It's a great pleasure it's been a great pleasure for us, the Friends of the Book Arts Press, to sponsor that tour, which I hear on all accounts has been a most successful one. And we look forward to listening to David Esselmont talk tonight on the Gurgunic Press, 1923-1990. David Esselmont. Thank you, and thank you to the Book Arts Press, and especially to Terry Bellinger. Noswaitha. Heno ruin mindi sharadam wask gregenog. Tonight I'm going to speak about the gregenog press. No, it won't be a bilingual talk. It is just to give you a feeling of the language. It is most important at first to create beautiful books representing the world of Welsh literature and to make the great outer world aware of them. So wrote Ernest Rees, editor of Dent's Everyman series in the 1920s, encapsulating in this one sentence the aims of the founders of the Gregonog Press. Out of this, he continued, will grow the true Gregonog tree. Where and when was the Gregonog Press founded? Who were the founders? Did the press reach the goals it set out to achieve? Let me answer those questions and tell you something about the craftsmen and craftswomen responsible and the unique circumstances in which they found themselves and still do. The press you will see is very much alive today. We shall take a close look at some of the books printed and bound at Griganok, paying particular attention to the illustrations and their bindings.
I'm having a problem with that. Thank you. Wales is a country a little smaller than Massachusetts. It's inhabited by a mere 2.85 million sheep. So that, that's the second time I've said that. It's actually inhabited by, by 2.85 million people. and a staggering 10 million sheep. It has a capital city, but no government. Its own postage stamp, but not its own currency. A flag, but no embassies. And most important of all, perhaps its own indigenous language. The name Gruganog first appears in the second half of the 12th century. It is thought to derive from the Welsh word for heather, grig, spelt G-R-U-G. Og is a place name ending. Put the two together, and you could say it perhaps means the place of the heather. The press was established here in the early 1920s at Gruganog, six miles north of Newtown, in Montgomeryshire, part now of the county of Powys. The little red square represents Gregonog. It was founded by Gwendolyn and Margaret Davies, known respectively as Gwen and Daisy. The sisters were undeniably wealthy, each reputedly having inherited around one million pounds. Their wealth was derived from the fortune their grandfather had amassed from his industrial enterprises, chiefly coal mining and shipbuilding in the south of Wales. The sisters and their brother Lord Davis bought Gruganog and its 750 acres in 1913. Eleven years later, in 1924, actually after the press had started, they came to live here together with their outstanding collection of paintings. It included the largest group of Impressionist and Post-Impressionist paintings in Britain at that time. For example, besides La Prusienne by Renoir, there were works by Monet, Manet, Pissarro, and Cézanne, to mention but a few. Their plan was to turn this mock Tudor mansion. It is in fact a folly. It is concrete rendering over brick. It is not half-timbered. Their plan was to turn this mock Tudor mansion, rebuilt by 1837, into an arts and crafts centre. There would be furniture making, pottery, weaving, calligraphy and printing. Their friend and mentor in this venture was Dr. Thomas Jones, TJ as he was known. TJ was deputy secretary to the cabinet under four prime ministers and played an important role in the life of the press. In fact, it has been said that it wasn't really TJ's press. The sisters appointed a director to organize the various crafts proposed, Robert Ashwin Maynard. He had originally trained as an architect and had been working as a theatrical scene painter. He'd also studied painting 
and his tutors held his work in high esteem. However, when he was contacted, thank you. When he was contacted regarding the Greganog job, he was actually selling cattle medicine. Maynard was appointed in 1921 and sent to London for 18 months to learn something of the proposed crafts. While at the Central School of Arts and Crafts, he studied printing and book production under J.H. Mason, the great scholar, printer, and typographer. Mason had, of course, worked with Cobden Sanderson and Emery Walker at the Dove's Press. Meanwhile, back at Grigunog, the Davis sisters tried to purchase lock, stock, and barrel the Shakespeare head press. They'd responded to H. Bullen's uh, requests for financial support at an earlier stage. But their attempt was unsuccessful. When Maynard returned to Grigunog, his enthusiasm for printing was quite clear, and plans for the other crafts were eventually relinquished. In particular, the work of the local carpenters was considered too rough to warrant pursuing furniture making. The clay was unsuitable for pottery. So the sisters converted the stable block, seen here on the right, into a print shop. The press room is on the extreme right of the picture. The three windows on the ground floor look into the press room where it all began. An Albion hand press was bought from Stevenson Blake, and Maynard recalls pulling the first proofs on the 20th of December, 1922. The Albion, along with the other 19th century iron hand presses, was like a precision instrument compared with the wooden common presses they superseded. Ideally suited to printing wood engravings and, and indeed used by many private presses. However, only two of the 42 Greganog press books were printed on the Albion hand press. The following year, a Victoria heavy art platen was installed, which became the main workhorse. The large numbers of, of distributing rollers and the action of the platen on impression, like that of the Albion but on a vertical plane, also make that an ideal press for printing wood engravings. With the press came other members of staff. John Mason, the son of J.H. Mason, came as bookbinder and general assistant, and the man to whom Gregonog owes its reputation for fine bindings, George Fisher, came in 1925. In the years that followed, the number of staff increased to reach a peak of 19. They installed a monotype caster, and thus became one of the few private presses to carry out every stage of book production under one roof. The result, wrote Thomas Jones in 1925, is a unity and harmony in the final product. A survey of the press is made easier by the distinct periods of activity, corresponding to the tenures of the directors or controllers, namely Maynard, William McCants, Lloyd Habley, James Wardrop, Eric G., and myself. The books produced under each regime are easily distinguished one from the other. The very first book was printed in 1923, Poems by George Herbert. 
has a wood engraved frontispiece and press device, but no other illustration. This chaste little book, unremarkable in itself, was quite an achievement for Maynard. 300 copies were printed on the Albion hand press on dry handmade paper. It was not until 1927 that the press printed on dampened paper. And then it was only due to a chance remark made by Bernard Newdigate. The book does, however, lack a certain typographical finesse. On the title page, there is no real attempt at letter spacing, and the lines would benefit from some additional leading. This and the following four books were set in Kennelly types, designed by Frederick Gowdy in 1911, and newly available from the Monotype Corporation in 1920. The majority of the edition was bound, like the copy shown on the left, in quarter cloth with a paste paper side. But Mason also bound 30 copies in full polished Levant Morocco, simple traditional bindings sewn on five raised cords, a gilt frame to the upper and lower boards, gilt rules to the edges, silk end bands, decorated head caps. It established the practice of issuing between 10 and 20 copies in a superior or special binding. Something of a Greganog hallmark. Maynard was joined in 1924 by the first resident artist, Horace Walter Bray. He had no previous knowledge of wood engraving, but quickly acquired the skills from Maynard. If Maynard had received any tuition in wood engraving while at the Central School, it would have been from Noel Rook, who taught so many artists, and of whom John Farley wrote in Graven Image, there are few who are not his students or students of his students. Sorry, let me go back again. For the next seven years, Maynard and Bray designed and engraved, with only one exception, all the illustrations, initial letters, press devices, and other decorations for 18 books. What is of particular interest is that they also designed most of the bindings. Now, the history of the Griganog Press is peppered with conflict. It began when John Mason resigned in 1925 because the Mrs. Davies wouldn't build a house for him. He left to join the Shakespeare Head Press, and a replacement had to be found. Sidney, or Sandy Cockle as he was known, came to work at Griganog for a year. It was only a temporary post. However, it was Douglas Cockrell, Sandy's father, who recommended one of his own pupils, a Londoner who had been an apprentice at Riviere's, and that was George Fisher. Fisher had become a farmer and not, had not done any binding for ten years. However, he came to Griganog for a trial period. Maynard and the press board were so impressed with his work that they offered him a full-time post. Fisher accepted on his terms having negotiated a salary far greater than he was offered. Chosen essays we see here came out in 1926. Both Maynard and Bray had a hand in illustrating this book. Unfortunately, they initialed their work and we can then identify their engravings. This example is by Bray. The book was favorably reviewed in the Times Literary Supplement, although no mention is made of its physical attributes. The typeface is Garamond, newly cast on the presses caster, and the illustrations are a more 
lively tone than previous work. The special binding was designed by Maynard and bound by Fisher, who said of it, it gave me much pleasure. Its plain, closely fitting squares demand much of the craftsman. The effect to me is one of coolness and clearness, like an early morning. Does it have that effect on you? <laughs> the ordinary binding, in complete contrast, was a plain blue buckram. Now, up to 1928, the illustrations are all of a similar nature with the exception of those in the life of St. David. Published in 1927, this was the first work to be printed on dampened paper. Maynard did not find this to be very easy, and in a letter to St. John Hornby, commented on the difficulty in getting the three printings to register. They were printing the wood engravings, the blue summaries, and the black text. The, il the illustrations, the polyphilous type, and the use of the pale blue, I think, go to make this one of the most successful books to come from the press to date. The 25 engravings were all hand-colored, were told by the girls in the bindery, under the supervision of Bray, of course. The ordinary binding is a, is a limp vellum, the only time that limp vellum was used. And it contrasts with the simple scarlet Levant Morocco of the special binding with its gilt Celtic crosses. With one exception, Maynard and Bray illustrated all their books themselves. The exception was Sliver Apragathor, the book of Ecclesiastes. Maynard had visited Eric Gill, who was then working at Caplifin. Gill had promised to visit Greganog in the autumn, but never did. What he must have done, though, was introduce Maynard to the work of David Jones. Maynard subsequently wrote to G.J. explaining how he found it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for Brain himself to undertake successfully the decoration of every type of book, and suggested that the occasional employment of artists outside the press would, I think, sweeten the Griganog cake. He recommended David Jones. David Jones illustrated Shivera Pregathur with a large frontispiece engraving and one smaller vignette. While the engravings themselves are masterful examples typical of David Jones' work, they are rather heavily printed like the rest of the book. And I don't think it is such a great success. I feel also that the text pages are marred by the, the heavy paragraph signs, which just distract the eye too much. The press's first folio, however, is on an altogether grander scale. The autobiography of Lord Herbert of Cherbury. Issued in 1928, this is the first time that Bray illustrates a book by himself, and the result is most satisfactory. The engravings are light and open, and a happy relationship exists between them and the text set in polyphilus. Indeed, one is reminded of that landmark in book illustration, the Hypnorotomachia. A review in the Observer newspaper commented at the time, the handmade papers of a stuff to last forever. The illustrations are woodcuts. They're actually wood engravings. 
like the old folios, but more defined to harmonize with the page. The engravings are superbly printed. Indeed, the whole book is meticulous. And it was the work of the printer Herbert Hodgson, who had joined the press the previous year from London. Hodgson had worked with Manning Pike on T.E. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. There's a light-hearted tone in, in Bray's engravings here, which we see developing more fully in his most humorous work, For the Misfortunes of Elfin. Harold Child, writing in the studio in 1930, speaks of so much demure drollery. Bray's stylized figures are presented in a, a black line. Consequently, there is not an overbearing weight to distract from the letterpress. Altogether, the book is a happy one. The typography is tasteful and thoughtful, and there's a quiet sobriety, and the amusing and witty illustrations complement Peacock's text admirably. The special binding we see here was designed by Bray. In contrast to the plain Morocco bindings are these, special bindings of selected poems of W.H. Davis and Christina Rossetti's poems designed by Maynard. For the W.H. Davis, 25 copies were presented in the full Morocco binding with gold silk end bands. Plain end papers reveal the yellow silk thread on which the book was sewn, which incidentally corresponds to the printed rules on each page. Maynard, we see, uses the same tool for both bindings, but with different effect. Fisher considered Maynard, being an artist, produced superior designs to both Copton Sanderson and Douglas Cockrell. In seven years, Maynard and Bray had produced 11 illustrated books, and another seven had single engravings or engraved initials. Their achievements are to be admired. At the outset, their style of engraving is so similar that it is often difficult to distinguish between them. It was Bray, however, who was the most versatile, as demonstrated in the Herbert. That is not to say that Maynard didn't produce some stunning engravings as well. Here in the stealing of the mare, his magnificent hand-colored frontispiece and decorative initial are embellished with gold leaf. Maynard and Bray left Grigonog in 1930 to set up their own Raven Press and continued for some years to produce illustrated books. Maynard in particular felt hard done to and was sick to death of battling through seas of superstition and misunderstanding. So in 1930, we embark upon a new and radically different era for the press. A Scot, William McCants, an artist and art critic, was appointed controller. Blair Hugh Stanton, who was already a well-known wood engraver, was appointed as artist. Neither McCants nor Hugh Stanton had any formal experience, printing experience, and they were packed off to work in other printing houses for a month. On their return, while Hodgson was still printing Euripides on the Victoria Platon, a legacy of Maynard and Bray, Hugh Stanton printed Comus on the hand press.
Shimon. These lovely costume engravings are a hint of the marvelously fine detailed work the artist was to make for the press. Simple face and page illustrations printed on Japanese vellum, a very smooth, maize-colored paper. The special binding we see here on the left marks the start of an adventurous period when the straitjacket of traditional symmetrical designs and period decoration disappears. Fisher, though, was somewhat concerned. Hugh Stanton's designs, he said, interested me more than they pleased me. While they afforded me ample opportunity to display my skills as a finisher, I considered them more suited to the decoration of the printed page. Panels of blind lines provide a tactile quality. We have a binding that works on more than one dimension. The Levant Morocco is not polished, and this enhances the contrast between the tooled and the plain areas, where the leather is left to speak for itself. McCanns and Hugh Stanton came to Gruganog with their respective wives, Agnes Miller Parker and Gertrude Hermes. Agnes Miller Parker was commissioned to illustrate Aesop's fables. This book, published in 1932, contains 37 large engravings which illustrate the text without being slavishly representational. Agnes Miller Parker has imbibed her creatures with a lifeblood all of their own. Exquisitely printed again by Hodgson on a rough handmade paper, the design of the page has been criticized. The engravings are too close to the text. And I think they would have benefited from a little bit of extra white space. Some are fairly dark. Indeed, we know that Hodgson mixed white ink with his black ink in an attempt to lighten the tone of some of them. McCann's engraved the decorative initials, and although accomplished, I feel they distract the eye too much. The ordinary copies were bound for the first time in, guess what, sheepskin. It came from the Lewis Tannery in Newtown, locally supplied, and actually gave a softer binding, and when new, they would have been very attractive, but the sheepskin bindings have deteriorated very badly. Not so the special bindings. Designed by McCants, we have an intricate design made up of calf inlays and gilt letters and lines. The title panel reflects the initial letters he designed for the text. But I find the panel too fussy. It's far too contrived and it's far too difficult to read. However, it is immaculately executed by Fisher. I'm rather pleased to be showing this slide, having seen, having seen, having seen the poster for tonight. In 1933, Erwan was published, Samuel Butler's Erwan. Newdigate wrote in the London Mercury, in 1933, a press work of uncanny perfection. Typographically, the book might be deemed not as successful for all the care and time taken in its making. Text is set in ten-point Baskerville, which at first seems a trifle mean. Hugh Stanton, and I should say probably Terry Bellinger as well, make a bold move on the title page. Adding an element of nouvelle typography, 
in running the imprint vertically up the page. But when one becomes accustomed to the small scale, the type, the illustrations and the pages work well together, rather like an early penguin paperback. I wonder though what the results would have been if the Davy sisters had sent McCann's and Hugh Stanton to Emery Walker or Bruce Rogers for some expert tuition as they planned at one stage. The special binding is, is well known and it's probably the one that is illustrated the most. The parallel lines we saw in Comus are back this time gilt and twisted into sharp bends. There are phallic overtones. But the overall impression is one of technical virtuosity. I remember handling this binding for the first time, marveling at the skillful tooling, and then discovering some years later, amongst the Griganog binding tools at the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth, a set of brass blocks. The tooling was not the result of such nerve-wracking work after all. You can identify the separate blocks just at the end of the curves. It seems likely that the impressions would have been made blind and then gilt. As a vehicle for Fisher's skills, it doesn't matter how it was done. There could not have been a better design. We now come to two of the most outstanding books to come from the press. The first is The Revelation of St. John, published in 1933. How very different to the first Gregonog book, published ten years earlier. The illustrations attracted considerable attention, and in a review in The Observer, we read, There can be no doubt that Hugh Stanton has here surpassed himself. There is in the wild sanity of this astounding book something very close to the texture of Mr. Stanton's own mind. It's probably quite true. Hugh Stanton and Gertrude Hermes had illustrated Pilgrim's Progress for the Cresset Press in 1928, and the Davy sisters would have seen that book. In particular, Hugh Stanton's engraving for Susanna and the Elders. Oh dear wrote Gwen Davis to T.J. Do you think we can ever woo him from these delectable ladies? They will never do for Gregonog. Well, she, ne she never did. Belayhu Stanton's illustrations are perhaps the most widely known of all the Gregonog artists. Many will be f familiar with his diaphanously, diaphanously draped figures. The companion volume is Lamentations of Jeremiah. This book contains 21 engravings by Blair Hugh Stanton and must surely be one of the most spectacular books to come from the press. Hugh Stanton's engraving is unbelievably fine. It was his own favorite book, an opinion no doubt formed because of the immaculate printing again. To say that Hodgson was a skillful printer is an understatement. He was a magician. Hugh Stanton would engrave finer lines and Hodgson would print them. Hodgson would say to you, Stanton, come on, I can, I can print that. Hodgson, Hodgson would print anything that Hugh Stanton could do. Hugh Stanton would say, come on, here's some final lines for you. You print these. A friendly rivalry existed between them. 
that these two books are so successful must in part be due to the fact that they were produced entirely under one roof. Designers, typesetters, illustrators, artists, printers, all working hand in hand. It is interesting to note, though, that Bernard Newdigate did not find the books completely successful. Revelation because of the break from traditional Christian iconography, and Lamentations because, he said, no engraved picture can convey the sense of utter desolation borne by the Bible text. The ordinary copies of Lamentations were bound in either blue oasis goatskin or hermitage calf. The special we see here was one of a number bound in unpolished black levant with onlays of oasis goatskin and vellum and blind and gold tooling. A complex design that, that appears simple and is not at all self-conscious. The Hugh Stanton's marriage was going through a difficult patch before they came to Wales. It finally broke up in 1932 and Gertrude Hermes left Griganog. However, she had been commissioned to illustrate Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne, but had only completed six of the engravings. The directors became impatient and nervous about the wisdom of publishing what would be an expensive book. Eventually, they resolved that the book be postponed until a more favorable time. In 1936, the type was distributed and the book was never published. Although, I'm pleased to say that in 1988 we resurrected the blocks from the National Library of Wales and published them together with extracts from Gilbert White's text. Hugh Stanton and the McCancers left the press in 1933 in September. The books they produced in a tempestuous three years are amongst the most exciting to come from any private press. Never again was there to be a resident controller or artist at Griganog. Lloyd Haberley and James Wardrop, who were respectively controllers up to 1940, were appointed on a part-time basis. This was not wholly successful, and perhaps the remaining books of the last six years suffered as a result. Lloyd Haberley, an American, went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and took a law degree at Trinity College. He had established his own private press, the Seven Acres Press, in Buckinghamshire. He'd also been highly recommended to the Davy sisters by John Johnson, then printer at the Oxford University Press. Hubbley was also an amateur bookbinder, and I feel that uh, his first designs for the Gregonog Press have that air about them, I'm sorry to say. His most successful book, though, was Xenophon's Cyropedia. This volume is more like a traditional private press book. It's a substantial folio, about two inches thick, and printed as usual on handmade paper. Lady Cartwright of Aino, an amateur binder and friend of Happily's, designed the special binding here, which was adapted by Fisher. The result is quite something. Although not to everyone's taste, one has to admire the skill that has gone into its, into its binding. Another of Hubbley's books was Eros and Psyche, with 24 engravings after drawings by Edward Byrne-Jones. Five of them were cut by Hubbley himself, 
and the rest by John Beedham. Compared with the earlier Griganog books, it has an antiquated appearance. Due without doubt, I think, to Grayley Hewitt's quirky typeface. Commissioned by Habley, and here used for the first and only time. There are echoes of Kelmscott. Indeed, the drawings were made for William Morris's Cupid and Psyche, but had never been published. When Habley left Griganog, he was given a gift of the type and the matrices. And I made the mistake of saying somewhere on this tour that they'd never appeared again, but some, of course, had come across them. The story of a red deer, Habley's work also, was a smaller children's book and is, is really important for the design by Fisher on the special copies. The ordinary edition, in contrast to the special binding, was a very, very ordinary brick-red cloth. The book contains coloured illustrations, however, printed colour this time, not hand-coloured. Habley, who you remember was not resident at Griganog, kept up a steady correspondence, sometimes daily, with Dora Herbert Jones, the press's secretary. She was worried by the thought of having to print in colour. Hand colouring was what they were accustomed to. Why then, when they had such skilful printers, should she worry? But of course, printing colour in close register on dampened sheets is extremely difficult. The special binding was designed by George Fisher. And we are told that Fisher's inspiration came from a ride in the rain, when Fisher found himself confronted by a grove of conifers, alongside which ran a newly ploughed field. You see that? <laughs> Almost. The last controller of the press was James Wardrop. He was an authority on manuscript hands as well as being a calligrapher himself. His most notable contribution was Joinville's The History of St. Louis. The book is quite cosmopolitan. The initial letters and chapter openings were designed by Alfred Fairbank and engraved by John Beedham. The hand-coloured shields were cut by Reynolds Stone. And there were also two maps drawn by Bertolt Wolper. The special binding is in polished blue levant with a diaper pattern of fleur-de-lis. The tools, as always, are cleanly and so deeply impressed, it makes a very handsome binding. But again, it is worth noting Fisher's comments. Wardrop, he said, was a traditionalist. It may be noted that the use of a section of pattern without adaptation to the confines of the book cover, as exemplified here, has failed to relate the spine to the sides and necessitated the cutting of eight extra tools. Well, Fisher has a point, but personally I feel that the design and showing a fragment of what is implied as a larger pattern is a good thing. The pattern extends beyond the covers of the book. The last book to come from the press was published in 1940. The war meant that the staff were needed elsewhere, and eventually the press closed. Fisher stayed on alone at Griganog until 1945, finishing the special bindings which, it seems, were always completed long after the book's first appearance.
Over 18 years, the press had published 42 titles, some 11,000 copies in ordinary bindings, together with around 800 copies in full leather. Under Maynard, the influence of Cobden, Sanderson, and the arts and crafts movement was ever-present. Although Maynard's designs for bindings are more inventive than Bray's, I think Bray's creative efforts went into his wood engravings, where his work is the stronger of the two men. With Hugh Stanton and McCance, we have the boldest gesture and avant-garde, modern binding. Many of them have that timeless quality that great works of art possess. Throughout, Fisher interprets a symbiotic relationship existed between him and the artists. At times, designing himself, he produced some very attractive, if restrained, bindings. I think you would agree that Fisher deserves a place in our history books alongside the designers and the artists. But now for the new press. In 1960, Miss Margaret Davis bequeathed Griganog to the University of Wales. The year following her death in 1963, they began to establish Griganog as a conference centre, primarily for its constituent colleges. The university was persuaded to finance a printing fellowship. In 1974, Michael Hutchins came to Griganog and single-handedly re-equipped the press before printing an edition of poems by R.S. Thomas, Laboratories of the Spirit. Following the old traditions, 15 copies were bound in full leather, this time by Sally Lou Smith. The publication proved so successful that Gwask Kriganog Limited was formed in 1978. You must pronounce the G on the end of Gwask, otherwise you refer to the Kriganog slave or manservant. Gwas is the word for slave. Eric G., formerly head of the Birmingham School of Printing, was appointed as controller, and together with a typesetter from a South Wales newspaper, David Vickers, they added to the equipment, bringing the Victoria Platten back on permanent loan from the National Library. Their first major book, Kerthy Robert Williams Parry, was printed dry on a special making of wiki-hole handmade paper. It was illustrated with wood engravings by Peter Reddick, who was then resident Griganog Arts Fellow. The title page is the work of the Welsh calligrapher Yain Rees. And as before, the edition was split, specials and ordinaries. Sandy Cockrellbound, the special we see here, to a design by Joan Ricks Tebbard. So with an annual grant from the Welsh Arts Council's Literature and Craft Committees and the ready-made premises, the press was off to a good start. But with a staff of only two, no bindery, and without the financial backing of two wealthy ladies, circumstances were rather different. James Brockman, one of Britain's leading bookbinders, was Gregor Arts Fellow between 82 and 83. During his stay, he refurbished the bindery and produced the first of a number of fine bindings for the press. Four Great Castles is, is very handsome. The horizontal bands, the horizontal onlays at the top representing the colors of the castles. The arches reflect their architectural form and tactile qualities 
again play an important role in this book. Inside the boards we have a full black calf doublure and suede fly leaves. So the traditional, the old tradition, I'm sorry, special bindings was firmly re-established. Deaths and Entrances is illustrated with watercolors by John Piper, printed for the first time by screenless or continuous tone offset lithography, not by us, by somebody else. The results are near facsimiles of the originals, and it is the colors of one of the watercolors that was the inspiration for Brockman's special bindings seen here, where he contrasts a, a colorful mosaic of of stained calf superimposed with an irregular gilt tool with a tan oasis goatskin. Inside, we have a brilliant yellow suede doublure, which we can see peeping round the frontispiece, and a green Japanese paper. Tactile qualities, again, being important. Well, I joined the press in 1985 to discover that the first book I had to print was to be the collection of Saunders Lewis's poems in Welsh. I had moved from England, from the northeast of England, and had no knowledge of Welsh. I found I was designing texts that had no immediate meaning. What a wonderful opportunity for creative typography! I could simply arrange words, lines, blocks of type to produce the most satisfying visual results. However, it was not long before I realized that all this material had to be read. And that one could very easily find Griffith, the most scholarly and astute of editors I yet to come across, oh, so very gently and subtly made me aware that on no account was I to take typographical liberties with the Welsh language. Among the legacy of the previous controller was the Mountains of Wales. This book was designed for us by John Ryder, who worked for many years as the director of design and production at the Bodley Head, and whose small book, Printing for Pleasure, has been an inspiration to so many. It gave me here the opportunity of working with one of the most experienced and skillful of typographers and book designers, especially on this, my first major book. As it is an anthology, it also gave me the, the excellent, really, introduction to the Welsh language and literature of Wales, both in Welsh and English. It is interesting to consider the limitations of a page design, such as we see here. Something called visual editing is at work. Indeed, the length of many of the extracts, the chagrin of the editor, were determined by the space available, and many were heavily cut. For illustrations, it was chosen to reproduce landscape watercolors by a late 18th century artist, the Reverend John Parker. I would have preferred to use original graphics, however. 
James Brockman again designed the special binding, and here the colouring of the stained transparent vellum echoes the colours of the watercolours. Now, when the press was reopened, a cylinder proof press was purchased. Eric G. had returned the, had brought back the Victoria Platon, and in much the same way that Maynard in the 1920s reasoned that the Victoria was a necessary and useful machine, I installed a fully automatic Heidelberg cylinder. The Rolls-Royce of letterpress printing machines, this press enabled us to improve the quality and the economy of the production process. With the exception of some of the older wood blocks, like the Gertrude Hermes here, we print everything on the Heidelberg. The existence of the Hermes blocks afforded not only the opportunity of publishing them, but of commissioning a text, indeed creating a whole book. Only a small edition of each engraving was made in 1934, and as a consequence they had remained relatively unknown. It was a great challenge to print the blocks, not only because of the unbelievably fine lines, but also because of the nature, the very nature of the blocks. Now over 50 years old and some made up of 16 separate pieces jointed together, there was the constant worry that while printing the now dry joints might open up or that one zinc the block indeed might split. They would, of course, like the majority of engravings at Griganog, originally have been printed on the Victoria Platon. Because of their age, I printed them on a Colombian hand press. For the board paper, I chose a detail from one of the engravings, enlarged it, and made a liner cut repeat pattern. You see, as an artist, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to vent my creative urges every once in a while. I do feel that the typography of the books, however, must not be too mannered, or display overtly my creative whims. Enough invisible creative energy goes into the design to satisfy me. This is not to say that sometimes my whims do come to the surface, often I discover with the Welsh texts. Here in Deg Sonnet by T.H. Parry Williams, I was faced with ten sonnets. How could I present these in an attractive way? Fortunately, the theme of the Welsh mountains runs through the poems, and they were the inspiration. The hand-coloured liner-cut frontispiece shows the poet's, poet's birthplace and afforded much amusement. One slip of the brush and you could actually demolish the birthplace. In place of page numbers, I took the coloured lines across the page, echoing those on the cover, rather obviously taking the mountains through the book. To celebrate the translation of the Bible into Welsh by William Morgan in 1588, we published Llyfr Jonas, the Book of Jonah. It is hand-set in 18-point fasciville, and I designed the pages like the early life of St. David without paragraph indents, these being shown by paragraph marks printed in pale blue. The 
same colour was used for the chapter summaries and the borders surrounding the engravings, which also appear on their versos. Now these empty boxes, which caused the photographer to come to me when I, with this, this page and, and ask me, do you really want me to take this empty box? These empty boxes represent the type area in an attempt to overcome the problem of blank pages where there is a full page of illustration not backed with text. Roswitha Quadflieg has used similar devices in her books in Germany. It seemed appropriate also, I should say, to commission Jonah Jones to draw the title panel for us. Colin Painton made the wood engravings, and it's perhaps worth noting that one or two of our customers found them a touch too explicit. <laughs> These smaller books are a relatively simple undertaking compared with the design and printing of our major books. Geraldus Cambrensis, Itinerary Through Wales. It's the account of Gerald the Welshman's journey through Wales in 1188. Colin Painton, who by chance lives only a few miles from the press, made over 33 wood engravings which we printed throughout the book with two colour borders. I've bought the book with me and you really do need to get close to it to see the colour. I wanted to give Geraldus the feeling of a medieval manuscript. The weight of the illustrations demanded a deep page, and the two colour borders, I think, I hope they do, convey that jewel-like quality of medieval illuminated manuscripts. Printing the coloured borders was a mammoth undertaking. To add variety, we've, we varied the combination of colours throughout the book. Now the engravings and the borders were of course printed separately from the text, and consequently some of the sheets passed through the press up to 15 times. One of the chief problems we had to overcome was registration. And it seemed at the time that everything that could possibly expand and contract was doing so. However, with a good deal of patience, we achieved the desired results. Had we been able to use four color presses, perhaps our task would have been a deal more straightforward. But we have not yet moved into offset lithography, nor computer typesetting. Indeed, one day we hope to reinstall the monotype casters. The old press you remember was casting type from matrices newly available from the monotype corporation. The equivalent today of using the latest available phrases from ITC. This is not to say that modern technology does provide some opportunities today. Glyn Tagai Hughes, the warden of Groganog when I arrived, and the director of the press retired in March 1989. A bibliomaniac with a private library of some 20,000 volumes, it seemed appropriate to present him with yet another book in appreciation of his services to the press. With the cunning that would generally be associated with clandestine printing, we managed, without his knowing it, to print a small book on the hand press. Every once in a while, Glyn Hughes would express an interest in the typeface Trump Medieval. Having passed Trump Tower today, it's not the, it's not the same Trump, I should, should point out. 
it might be considered his favorite typeface. And it was an obvious choice for the leader. Unfortunately, it was not available in Britain as metal type. What could we do? Well, the solution was to have it computer typeset and output on a high-resolution laser printer from which we had blocks made. We then proceeded to print it by hand on Japanese gampi vellum, that most beautiful and sensitive of handmade papers. Unfortunately, the deception could not be maintained as the recipient helped to compile our descriptive catalogue in which all secrets are revealed. But nobody has guessed how, quite how we did it. Large books present large problems. I want to design books which are easy to read, that one can sit comfortably with. The format of Parzival was determined by the size of the wood engravings. In 1936, Stefan Rzewski, an artist of Polish descent, made some 12 large wood engravings illustrating the story of Parzival and the Holy Grail. It was never printed. Two years ago, we commissioned a new version of Wolfram von Eschenbach's tale to accompany Mrzewski's magnificent large engravings. We began with the attention, as we had with the Hermes, of printing from the original blocks. Now dry and very badly warped, the blocks themselves have to be warped flat before printing. After proofing the first block, I began to print the addition. First on the hand press, and then on the cylinder proof press. Printing was extremely difficult. Besides the large black areas, there were areas of incredibly fine lines. After only 25 copies, my worst nightmare became reality. A loud crack came from the block. And although there was no split on the surface, it was obvious that I could no longer continue printing. The blocks had been poorly made. The 16 or so separate pieces from which the block had been made had simply been but jointed together. There were no fillets between them. And it was one of these joints that was beginning to open up. Again, what could we do? But fortunately, we had a set of proofs that were taken from the blocks in 1936 and signed by Mrzewski. And our only option really was to reproduce these, which the Western Press did in Kent, printing them by fine screen offset lithography. The results are most satisfactory, and the quality is equal, if not better, than the originals. For the quarter leather binding, I designed this diamond patterned cloth, inspired by Parzival's raiments and contemporary German illustrations. Parzival was known as the Red Knight, you see. So that brings us up to date. A full schedule of titles for the next three years includes volumes of poetry, letters, Spanish 16th century picaresque novel, and selection from Walt Whitman's drum taps, about which we talk, the editor and I, in Welsh, believe it, and a descriptive catalogue of printing at Kriganog since 1970. I'm pleased to say that the press is growing. This summer we reopened the bindery and the five permanent staff were joined by the first Griganog student in the book arts. Once again, all stages of book production will be undertaken under the same roof and the old creative atmosphere rekindled. 
Did the old press achieve its aims? I think it did. The Greganog Press produced some beautiful books, and many have become known throughout the world, as I hope will our recent titles. As time goes on and the Greganog tree continues to grow anew, the hiatus brought about by the closure of the old press in 1940 will be seen as nothing more than a dormant period. And it remains our aim at Gregonok to produce books to the highest possible standards, using the finest materials. Furthermore, we aim to print texts of equal value, in books which will not only be a joy to read, but a delight to all the senses. Thank you. I hope that you will all join me in doing two of two things, but not simultaneously. One of them is joining me for a drink in the press room in 502, and the other one is taking a look at these books in this room without a drink in your hand. We'll leave the room open for half an hour or so so that you may do the seriatim and no special order, so long as uh, there's no food in this room. David, thank you very much. <laughs>